Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Earth, air, water, and fire. Going back to antiquity, these four elements were considered the fundamental materials that comprised everything in the physical universe. The theme is the basis for a new show at the Marietta Cobb Museum of Art. Later this hour, we'll hear from Doug Pisick and Robert Birch, two of the artists in the group exhibition, with Madeline Beck, curator of the Four Elements. Plus... Actors Express at the Crossroads. That's the theater's original podcast drama created by six BIPOC Atlanta writers. First, BIPOC artists celebrated in concert. Harpist Angelica Hairston works to create social impact through the power of the arts, with her organization Challenge the Stats, and as artistic director of the Urban Youth Harp Ensemble. Challenge the Stats will present Rhythm of the Roots, a virtual concert Saturday from First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta. Verena Anders is among the artists performing on that program, she joins us now with harpist Angelica Hairston. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. It is great to be here. Angelica, would you first tell us about Challenge the Stats and why you created it? Absolutely. So I actually am a native of Atlanta. I grew up here and I went and did my uh, undergrad in Toronto. So very cold, very different than my Georgia Atlanta roots. And while I was in Toronto, um, a moment, quite honestly, that was very similar to what we're experiencing today happened. And that was the murder of Trayvon Martin. And I remember um, sitting in this practice room working so hard on my Mozart and thinking, you know, what are the ways that my classical music training and performance, how can I intersect this with what's happening in the world around me? How can my music have an impact 
um, on what was happening uh, specifically to black communities at that time, but also communities of color at large in the United States. And I ended up then going to do a master's in music business and uh, launched a concert, just one concert called Challenge the Stats, which really was about celebrating, but also highlighting what was happening within communities of color and, and how we could sort of amplify a message of justice and change through music. Uh, and in 2018, moved back to Atlanta because I wanted some more warmth and Challenge <laughs> the Stats came with me as well. Verena, what is your nonprofit organization, Conductors for Change? Yes, uh, thanks for asking about that. Conductors for Change really wants to provide a platform for discussion, but also for action, led mostly by conductors, although we invite any musicians, teachers especially, and composers to form a dialogue to begin to really make the classical music world more um, inclusive. And that's of course for people of color, women, the LGBTQ community, and just begin to hopefully change the face and the look and the dynamic of classical music. Hmm. What will be the focus of this concert? Yeah, so Rhythm of the Roots 2021, which is happening on Saturday, will really be a response to this kind of accelerated focus around racial justice that we've seen in the past year. I think we've all experienced the power of the racial reckoning that we have all sort of taken part of uh, in this past year. And this Saturday, having 12 Atlanta-based artists playing the music of all living Black, Indigenous, and people of color, you know, from Atlanta natives like Carlos Simon and Juan Ramirez, Joelle Thompson, um, to Navajo composer Connor Chi and Black female composer Valerie Coleman, which Verena will actually be playing some of those works. Uh, it really will be a time for us to center and amplify the voices of musicians of color, which is really how we work towards justice in an authentic way. Angelica, you will perform a very emotional tribute to George Floyd called Listen to the Cry of Your Fellow Man composed by Charles Overton and Gus Sebring. Would you talk about the lyrics of this song and what it represents? Sure. So Listen to the Cry of Your Fellow Man was uh, written by Charles Overton and Gus Sebring. And Gus is actually a hornist in the Boston Symphony Orchestra. And he was sitting down um, shortly after um, the brutality towards George Floyd and this beautiful melody just just came out. Uh, and the two of them, harpist Charles and hornist Gus, worked together to create this musical response. And what's so powerful about the music is when I first got it, it's basically lead sheet. So there are chords and I'm like, I'm a classical harpist. I don't know <laughs> what to do with this. Um, but what was so powerful working with Charles on this piece is that um, it should never be the same twice. It should always be the authentic response that, you know, especially as a Black woman experiencing in the past year and seeing all of the injustice 
what that has felt like and being able to express that in the moment in a different way every single time as we continue to um, just face this pandemic and face injustice uh, has been a really beautiful way for me to also grow as an artist in learning and performing this piece. Well, would you explain what you touched upon about not being familiar with a technique? <laughs> Absolutely. You know, it, it's so interesting because as a musician, I've been able to play really all over the world and have always been given notes on a page. And I sit down and learn those notes and play them as best as I can. Um, but to be pushed to say, what do you want to say? How do you create your own composition in the moment that really um, is birthed from whatever emotion you feel when you sit down at the harp? Um, it's been a, a wonderful journey. I've learned so much more about improvisation. And I think the beautiful thing about this concert in particular is, has been working directly with the composers. So working with Charles and having him help me learn how to improvise in more authentic ways. Um, and the same for, for Verena, working with Connor Chi, a Navajo composer, and learning more about that music and that legacy as well, um, just helps us perform in a more authentic way. I wondered about the beauty of the melody you mentioned that just kind of flowed from Charles Overton and the horrific things we've heard in recent days from the trial of the officer accused of murdering George Floyd. How do we reconcile beauty with murder? Such a great question, Lois. And I think what is so powerful about the work of Challenge the Stats is that we are artists who are responding to the times with the tools that we know best. And that is the tool of music and the tool of artistry. And when Marie, the hornist that I'll be performing with, Marie Douglas and I first sat down to rehearse this piece, you know, it's in the midst of this trial, in the midst of, again, a full year of reckoning now coming to the surface as we sit down to try and create something musical. And I think what is so powerful about this music is that it's not only about the grief and sadness, but it's also the beauty of life, the humanity, um, and, and also the power of hope and change and all of us using our voices to try and grapple together. Uh, I think what's beautiful about the piece as well is it doesn't really resolve <laughs> at the end. It sort of remains in a, in a liminal space of unknown, which I think we've all experienced in this past year of pandemic um, and moving forward. Uh, but there really is a call for each of us uh, to sort of take what we know best. Maybe mine is music but that we all have something that we can use to work towards a brighter future together. Verena, you will perform music by the composer Valerie Coleman. She's listed as one of the top 35 women composers. Yes. And she was named Performance Today's 2020 Classical Woman of the Year. How would you describe her style? 
Well, her style is very unique, and we are performing two particular movements um, from the Langston Hughes, portraits of Langston Hughes, uh, Harlem Nights and Dance African, two very different uh, movements. And the Harlem Nights just puts me right there with the imagery of the Harlem Renaissance and, you know, just an evening stroll and what Langston was experiencing there um, and what a lot of shakers and movers were, were experiencing at that time. Um, and it's also very sultry and working with these uh, wonderful musicians, Tara Bertong and Ricky Saucedo. It was just a great little team there. A night veil girl whirls softly to the circle of light, whirls softly, slowly, like a wisp of smoke around the fire and the tom-toms beat and the tom-toms beat, and the low beating of the tom-toms stirs your blood. The dance African was just incredibly fun to play, to be honest, uh, the interplay of rhythms. And it's definitely unique, something new to me. I've, I haven't really as a pianist played music quite like that, but it was incredibly fun and, and great to learn about. Hughes was among the earliest innovators of the literary art form called jazz poetry. Why do you think his works particularly resonate today as much as they did earlier in the 20th century? That's a good question. Um, I think his works were very centered on the arts and expression and taking imagery and culture. Um, you know, many of his poems from that were selected for this uh, piece were from also images of of Europe, which at that time was somewhere where people wanted to go. There wasn't as much segregation there. And I think it brings a sense of hope, um, a sense of, you know, using your imagination and using your creativity to keep hope alive in times that are really a struggle. Who will read Langston Hughes poetry at the concert? So at the event, uh, Niani Braxton, she is a 15-year-old poet. She'll be reading uh, Summer Nights and Dance African, which were both written by Langston Hughes. Oh, wow. So this makes Amanda Coleman seem like <laughs> a geriatric. <laughs> <laughs> She's a very powerful young woman, and we're excited to amplify her voice there. Oh, that's great. Indigenous and Native American composers and musicians deserve far greater recognition. Verena, you will perform piano music of the Navajo Diné composer Connor Chi. How would you characterize this music? 
this music for me was very special to learn and to get familiar with. It is singular in, in all of the classical training and classical pieces that I've played. I certainly have never played a piece by a Navajo composer. And in fact, I don't often sadly get um, concert opportunities to play living composers. So this was incredible. And Angelica and the CTS team were gracious enough to plan a Zoom meeting between Connor and I. And I learned so much about the history of how he took what is called a vocable, which are basically these sung or uttered syllables found in Native American music that are not words. And he took these vocables from his grandfather and tried to transcribe them. And that ended up in a whole series of piano vocables to which he added, of course, harmonies and um, beautiful pianistic phrases. So it was just wonderful to learn so much. Angelica, are there other works to be performed? Yes. So Tara Birdsong will be performing Move It by Carlos Simon, which was written during the pandemic because we all want to get out and move. Uh, Joelle Thompson actually arranged uh, A Change is Gonna Come, Sam Cooke's beautiful piece, uh, and we'll be doing it for string quartet and dancer, so really bringing in that artistic element, uh, as well as Maurice Strawn, who is a Black composer, harpist, and organist, wrote a piece uh, called A Canon of Peace that I will be performing with organ on that concert. So we're really excited for all of this incredible music, including a piece by Juan Ramirez, his Latin Steps from Sweet Latina, and sort of celebrating Atlanta-based composers as well. inspire change, especially regarding social justice? 
That's a great question. You know, when we think about the way that music impacts our lives, it is a deeper power very often than words, even as Verena was mentioning, sort of taking these elements that aren't even words um, that move us to tears, that move us to action, that make us feel something um, much deeper than we can possibly express. You know, when I think about the power of musicians and artists themselves, you know, we go to conservatory and we learn how to take a really big challenging piece of music and we don't give up. We don't just throw it to the side. We, we break things down into smaller pieces. We learn what we can handle today. We work with others to help us grow in our abilities. We know how to perform in chamber music, to collaborate, to be kind and generous and give feedback. I mean, I, I really believe that artists are the leaders when we talk about models for working towards change together um, in ways that don't just try to make us all the same, but we use the beauty of our unique voices to create something more powerful as a collective. Harpist Angelica Hairston, founder of Challenge the Stats, with pianist Verena Lucia Anders, co-founder of Conductors for Change. The Rhythm of the Roots concert will stream tomorrow at 8 p.m. on the Challenge the Stats Facebook and YouTube page. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Earth air, water, and fire. Going back to antiquity, these four elements were considered the fundamental materials comprising everything in the universe. The theme is the basis for a new show at the Marietta Cobb Museum of Art. The Four Elements, a group exhibition features 13 artists whose work is relevant to at least one of the four elements. Two of the artists, Doug Pesick and Robert G. Birch, join us now with Madeline Beck, curator for the Marietta Cobb Museum. Welcome to City Lights. Hello, thank you so much for having me. I'm so honored to be here. It's great being here, Lois, thanks. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, Maddie, you curated this exhibition. What inspired your selection of the theme? Well, you know, okay, so I came up with the idea for this exhibition shortly after I took over my position at the Marietta Cobb Museum of Art. I started in a summer of 2018, or uh, 2017, excuse me, and so then I came up with the idea, um, I would say right around the start of 2018, 
And I don't know how it came to me, but I just had this idea of really getting to indulge in the materials that artists use, but as well as how artists always seem to hearken back to nature and the cosmos and the universe. That just really inspired me. And I had honestly dozens of artists that piqued my interest over the kind of years of developing this idea. And then ultimately I ended up whittling it down to the 13 fantastic artists that I am working with right now. And it really ended up just being artists that I felt truly embodied this exhibition concept, but without just painting a picture of fire or painting a picture of an ocean, I wanted to get a little bit deeper with it, um, you know, by way of subject as well as by way of technique and material. And so the artists I have on exhibition for this show, I feel like really, really meet that um, appropriately. And Doug and Robert are perfect examples of bringing, you know, subject and technique and materials into this concept. Wow. Well, Doug, Robert, you collaborated to create a few of the pieces in the exhibition. How did you decide you'd work together? Robert had been exhibiting in galleries and museums, including the Meredith Museum of Art, uh, for some time. And it turned out that Robert and I met because we were both exhibiting at the same galleries. And by complete coincidence, I was down in Miami uh, a couple of years ago for the Big Miami Art Week. And Robert came up behind me and said, hey, Doug. Robert, you'll let you take it from there because you're the man that actually thought we should work together. Yeah, we were, we were down in, at Basel and it just made sense to try to work together because I make a lot of my artwork in the Southeast. I'm kind of always moving around, but um, there's a, a studio in uh, Jackson County, kind of by Asheville, uh, that runs off methane from a landfill. So it's kind of where I return to, to to make most of my work. But, you know, Doug's in Atlanta, so I said, let's just drive up and try some things. And for me, it was very exciting. I've always been intrigued by art and Robert makes the most spectacular works, which he, he's going to need to describe the what he does in his techniques. He's, he's definitely a master of his craft. And when he came up to me and said, let's work on something together, because he hadn't worked in wood before, which is my specialty, it just seemed to make sense. And what we were able to do by combining 2000 degree glass with wood that ended up with some beautiful pieces that weren't just a pile of ashes really turned out to be spectacular. I learned a lot working with Robert and he, he gave me the guiding principles of how I needed to create some forms that he could work with. And then he and I worked together. He, he did all the glass work with me standing by his side. And then I took the glass and, and finalized the pieces by rewrapping the wood around them and doing things with them that look impossible, which is really a big part of the uh, of what we found very intriguing about the works. Listening to you talk about combining 2,000-degree glass work, which Robert deals with, and, of course, your medium, which is wood, it brings to mind the creation. I mean, <laughs> did you feel like you were back when the universe was taking form. <laughs> uh, for, for me, it's spectacular the first time you go into a hot shop and experience it, especially as a novice. The very idea of fire 
or that degree of heat to a woodworker must be traumatizing for you. <laughs> well, I, I knew that the forms I created were going to be damaged and with some guidance from Robert about some things that could be done to save the pieces. I, uh, I soaked the wood for several days before we blew into them. And uh, the wood was designed, it was engineered in such a way that once the glass was formed, we could separate the wood from the glass before it all completely burned up. And then after we separated, as Robert continued throwing the glass into the furnaces, I took the, I took the wood forms and ran outside with a hose to, to them to make sure that they didn't burn into nothing. And then literally it took months of me drying and, and unwarping and, and cleaning the wood before I could reuse it again and put it back on the glass because the wood had deformed and partially burnt up and I had, it to, um, I had to revive it and make it back into something that could be used later on. And the whole idea of going down, like you said, like creation, uh, definitely. I mean, when you see molten glass, you're literally working with something as if it came out of a volcano. My and Rob, Robert was so kind to introduce me to that medium. So that way I could expand what I do and Robert could expand what he does with the wood. Maddie, as curator, did you seek out mixed media works or was this surprising that you found Doug and Robert so willing to collaborate? Yeah, you know, I wouldn't say that that was necessarily a goal when I began conceiving of this exhibition. Um, I was almost leaning a bit more into the expected, like I was saying earlier, like just kind of paintings of water or paintings done with the use of fire, stuff like that. But then once I started really developing the idea and just the relationships I've built with all of these artists over the years, I was starting to just kind of get these little hints and these little little moments where I was just connected back to this exhibition idea that I had. And Doug and Robert actually uh, submitted a piece of their artwork to my museum's juried exhibition last summer. And it was this beautiful wood form that Doug had done with all of these holes in it. And then Robert had blown this glass form inside of it and it's, it bubbled out of the holes in, in Doug's wood form. And it really got me thinking about this elements concept that I had. And I thought, oh my gosh, how perfect the two of these artists are incorporating all four of the elements, you know, just from a material standpoint, just the air that Robert's blowing into the piece and the earth of the wood that Doug is using. And then the fire of the uh, glass blowing and then water, like Doug is saying, to cool it all down. I mean, it just, that alone was so intriguing. And then you get into these fantastic forms that they've done, like the cloud catcher piece that is one of the highlights of the show, I feel, and it looks like it's floating away. So it really ended up becoming this perfect fit for the exhibition. And I feel like all the other artists fit this same bill, you know, where it was just I've admired their work for years. And then with our discussions, with my just keeping up with their work, I was just really brought back to this concept I had. And these artists' work moved me the most. And so that's why I really pursued this, you know, dozen, this baker's dozen of really fantastic artists. Well, Cloudcatcher is 
Amazing. Doug, would you tell us how you and Robert created the piece? Well, I, I'll start by uh, telling you about the form that was created. I'll pass it on to Robert to talk about the creation of the glass and then back to me for the final fitting of what was done. We um, created a basically a cage of wood with all these forms and legs and holes wrapped around it. And again, it was engineered with wire and braces so that way it could be separated from the glass at the right moment. I brought that over to uh, Jackson County, uh, as Robert had mentioned before, which is an amazing location where they use methane gas from a landfill in order to blow the glass. Yeah, I mean, glass working soft glass is really about uh, controlling the heat um, when you're inflating the glass. So you basically have to set up a bubble shape and then you have a few seconds to get it right. And, you know, you put it inside the wooden mold and inflate the glass and then it's a really quick process, um, but you, you kind of can't miss. Once you've removed the wood from the glass form, we put it into a, a kiln overnight and slowly cool it from 1,000 degrees to room temperature. And um, then from there, it kind of goes back to Doug and, and his process is really you know, meticulous and precise and, and all the things that glassworking really isn't. <laughs> it's, it's funny you say that because I have an engineering background and I am so into precision with a lot of the work that I create. And I'm trying to work with more free forms. And you can see that with some of the works in the exhibit that Robert and I worked on together. And for this particular one though, I went back to the engineering. After restoring the wood and reshaping it, as I mentioned earlier, I ended up engineering this entire unique mechanical looking structure that wraps around this glass, which looks like in some ways it looks like a structured engineered balloon that looks like it's meant to be sucking up air which was the name Cloudcatcher. and we've, i figured out how to suspend it from ropes from the ground so as madeline mentioned earlier it looks like it's floating off the base tied down anchored to the ground with these ropes and leveled up off the air it took several weeks to figure out how to do that and how to get the effect right, but it worked and it was worth all the engineering to make it happen. And the, uh, the free form of uh, the glass that Robert had created and the way he shaped it, just positioned with the, with the sharply engineered work, which I do, makes for a piece that I find is significantly better than anything I could have done on my own and and there's something different i'm not going to say better because robert does incredible work but different than anything robert could have probably done on his own together we have learned how to become collaborators and take advantage of each other's specialties mm. well you also collaborated on a piece called flow too which i just love robert how did that piece come together when the glass comes out of the furnace it is like 2300 degrees and uh it acts a lot like honey. And so if you get enough on the end of a piece of steel, you can kind of just drip it and it'll flow like water really slowly or lava. And so we, we basically poured molten glass on the wood um, until it took shape and then put, put that in a kiln and cooled it down. And, and again, Doug ran outside with the hose and we had to <laughs> turn everything on. 
put put out all the fires and then reassemble them later. 2,300 degrees pouring over wood. How did the wood just not explode with that or burst into ashes? Uh, I, I'm going to say that it's not always perfect. <laughs> the, the water really helps because it creates a layer of steam between the wood and the glass. Um, but if you had left it there for you know, 10, 15 minutes, it would have definitely just, just burns up. Well, it is just a gorgeous piece. Did you learn anything new about the medium in which you specialize through the collaborative process of creating art with someone whose preferred medium is so different from your own? I think that I just learned to admire the way that some people's brains work. Like the way that Doug works is like the precision you can get with wood and having to predict the ways that certain wood will shrink and expand and change um, is just so far out of my wheelhouse that I just kind of sat back and, and enjoyed watching Doug work through all these things. And with his engineering mind, just even having dimensions of pieces and everything just like documented in all these ways that I, I pretty much, it, it evades me. So I just kind of just learned to admire someone else who's, honed in their craft and understanding of something. Madeline, I realize you can't go through all 11 of the remaining, but could you tell us some highlights about some of the artists or work featured in the Four Elements exhibition? Definitely. I actually kind of have already broken the artists into not two categories because I'm really trying to refrain from specifically categorizing each of these artists into one element, one interpretation, because I think the beauty of this exhibition is how everything is overlapping. Um, but I do want to give a shout out to each of the artists, and I can do so in a pretty zippy way um, <laughs> with kind of how I've organized it here. So um, I did want to bring to the forefront that, you know, while a lot of our conversation today has been rooted in like the materiality of the elements. I do have a selection of artists and that includes Scott Eakin, Dante K. Hayes, Christina Kwan, Eleanor Neal, Kevin Palm and Jamil Wright Sr. These artists are using a bit more of a conceptual approach to the elements. So they're exploring ideas like memory and impermanence ancestry, lost identity. They're exploring these really deep personal themes and concepts and they're doing so through very material elemental processes um, and and always it seems like hearkening back to the cosmos and to nature like I was saying before and then we've got artists um, like Doug and Robert here as well as Chad Walt, Joseph Guay, Eloisa Gallegos Hernandez and Pem Longabardi and Karina Sephora. These artists are using a bit more of a materiality and technique and subject-based approach to handling the elements. So we have artists that are using found objects and adding their own nuances to it and making commentary on, you know, violence and war and the deterioration of our oceans, you know, these really broad concepts but also just artists like Doug and Robert who are really just, you know, indulging in material and exploring the boundaries and the limitations of these materials and what happens when man and nature combine in these ways and how that's affected everything from science and medicine and still to this day it's affecting art.
So that's kind of my, in a nutshell, way to kind of bring everybody into the conversation together and to kind of feature each of these artists separately. The exhibition sounds wonderful. Thank you, Lois. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Madeline Beck, Robert G. Birch, Doug Pisick. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful, Lois. Artists Doug Pisick and Robert Birch with curator Madeline Beck. The Four Elements exhibition opens tomorrow at the Marietta Cobb Museum of Art and will be on view through June 20th. More information will appear on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Crossroads is a new podcast series from Actors Express, and it's not surprising that arriving at a crossroads, Actors Express would combine innovation with depth of thought. Freddie Ashley is the artistic director of Actors Express. He joins us now with Amanda Washington, the director of Crossroads, and playwright Amina McIntyre. She wrote episode six for Crossroads. Welcome to City Lights. Thanks for having us, Lois. Yes, I'm so happy to virtually meet you. Please tell us how the idea for a serialized podcast series came about. Well, Amanda and I were brainstorming about some you know, digital programming ideas, and she came with three or four like really good, interesting ideas, one of which was a podcast. And at the time, we didn't have a full picture of where that would go, but we sort of brainstormed and talked about it and set up a a process for it brought on the writers and the rest is history. <laughs> okay. Amanda, can you give us just a summary of Crossroads? Yes. Crossroads is this adventure between three friends. And I, I was telling the cast in our first night a couple of days ago that it's, it's the journey to see change and to not just accept what has been placed in front of you. And sometimes you actively go into that change and sometimes you are thrust in that change, which is what the main character's soul, that's what has happened to her. She's thrust into change, but she grows and she flourishes in the environment that the playwrights have created for her. And I hope I'm not spoiling anything when I say that she meets the devil herself. Oh, no, you're not spoiling anything. The devil is mentioned in episode one, and we get to see the devil in episode two. So I don't think that's, that's too much of a spoiler. But yeah, the devil is reimagined, which I, I really appreciate. Oh, yeah. Now, I'm quoting here. This is an adventurous story by people of color, about people of color, and for people of color. How does that inform this series? I think 
the playwrights were able to put their lived experience into the characters without it always focusing on being colored in a situation, but more so the intersectionality of life. And so it just enriched the text by seeing people as fully dimensional and not just their color. Yeah, a total presentation of story from that point of view. Amina, you wrote episode six in this series. How do you balance your creative freedom while maintaining the podcast storyline? Well, it was actually quite fun to think about how I could push myself for this. So what happens was I got all five episodes prior to mine um, because I was on episode six. I got a chance to at least see what came before. And my duty was to first say, hey, let's stick with the integrity of the play, but also see where I can push because it wasn't a genre that I'm normally used to being seen writing in. And so it was actually quite fun to I'm challenging myself to say, hey, so if I like to, to think about character development, if I like to think about magical realism, and if I like to think about those particular elements of how my own work tends to work, and especially also ritual, what does it look like in this particular world? And so it wasn't hard to come up with it. It was just hard to think about coming after such brilliant writers. And once you hear the podcast, you'll see exactly what I mean, because the world just goes higher and higher and you really wonder where to go next and where what episode could possibly do for you next. This is exciting. Without giving us spoilers, can you tell us what you explore in your episode? Yes, yeah, so I explore conversations between, I guess, for, I'm going to make sure I'm not spoiling, between the devil and the one other person who I felt had the same kind of power dynamic in the group. I also explored a little deeper the main character's backstory, kind of how they became friends and what's, um, why they stick together and also tried to help enrich um, who's around them and probably assisting them on their particular journey. So we just kind of get a, a glimpse of some of their backstory in my particular episode. What notions or concepts of earth and hell does this podcast try to challenge? I'll take that one. I was talking to one of the playwrights, Sky Passmore, and he mentioned this lovely thing of we on earth have this perception of what heaven and hell may look like, but we didn't want to go there with the podcast. We wanted to be able to create our own conventions so then these characters could live under any circumstances and the, the listener would buy that. So in Sky's episode, we get taken on a journey ah. so that we know that our earthly thought process, it's not that it's not allowed, it's not the norm here. And so we get introduced to new norms. The synopsis of Crossroads says that the characters are catapulted into a strange world that brings them face to face with the devil herself. We mentioned this at the beginning. The word devil in the Greek is a masculine singular adjective. Why do you think that is? Well, I think so many stories in our various mythologies have been centered on 
the patriarchal tradition and, and male lenses. And so I think we're at a point now in our development as humans that we are mercifully starting to recognize that those lenses through which our shared myths have been formulated aren't necessarily the only way to think about them. And now as to why the playwright who created this character in this way did so, I certainly wouldn't want to put words in his mouth, but I was completely delighted when I saw that the devil was presented as female. Well, what is the saying in theater? The devil gets all the songs, right? (laughs) I haven't heard that one before. Maybe it was in film. Okay. That's great, though. I love it. (laughs) So why not let a woman have a chance finally to get the songs? Freddie, in now almost 12 months, theater has had such challenges in remaining connected with audiences. This is a wonderful opportunity for you with the podcast. And I wondered if you think Actors Express will produce more in the future. Well, it's so funny that you ask that because we've been talking about just that whether it's a continuation of this story and series or whether it's a new one, we've been doing a lot of talking lately and and thinking and brainstorming about which of the sort of digital platforms and storytelling styles that we've turned to out of necessity might be worth continuing. Which do we want never to see again? (laughs) Which do we want to keep on? And what I love about the podcast idea, I was talking about this with one of our actors, is that it's such a great opportunity to reimagine storytelling and really in a conscious and deliberate way, take stories to people where they are rather than have them have to come where we are. Hmm. Amina, Amanda, I was reading something recently, actually by a critic who was saying how much he has enjoyed virtual performances of plays and audio theater. Do you think this has been a silver lining from the pandemic? I absolutely think that it has been a silver lining. For me personally, I've gotten a chance to see readings of a lot of my favorite playwrights and I've heard different other performances that I would never have been able to, either because it wasn't going to be on my schedule or because they, we all just live in different places. And I do think that it has brought us a lot closer. It's also given some opportunities to playwrights who never would have been in the room together or playwrights whose voices haven't been able to emerge. And when I think about even the playwrights on this podcast, Natasha Sky, Parker, Avery, and Quinn Hernandez, all of these persons are people who I've known around the city and have seen some of their work, but I haven't been able to even work with them or see some of their fuller work. And so I'm really excited to see that there are new opportunities coming for playwrights who may not have had these opportunities had it not been a pandemic. Amanda, this is something that, as Freddie was describing, you'd want to see stay. 
Oh my goodness. Yes. This <laughs> <laughs> I, <laughs> I laugh because I'm thinking about the beginning to now, and we've been working on this project since I think late October, early November. And while that was, it was a great start. It was also a lot of work, but now that we know what we're doing, it's like, okay, let's do this again. I'm ready to see where this adventure takes us. Crossroads podcast director Amanda Washington, Actors Express artistic director Freddie Ashley, and playwright Amina McIntyre, who wrote episode six. All episodes of the podcast are streaming now on the Actors Express website. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and cultural life. Monday at 11 a.m., we'll dream of Harlem. Leatrice Elsie of Atlanta's Hammond's House Museum will tell us about her role now as Senior Director of Programming for the historic Apollo Theater in New York. Our theme music is The First Time, written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band. Special thanks to Hot Shoe Records, Summer Evans is City Lights producer. Our engineer is Shelley Canavy. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I would absolutely love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Have a safe and good weekend. And thank you for listening to member-supported WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.